Well, good evening. Evening. I had to write it down because I knew I'd say good morning. <laughs> um, first of all, thanks for coming. I know this is midweek. It's a different thing. Glad to see you all here. I hope it will grow. Um, I am recording this, so if you miss a week, you can catch it up on the um, app or the podcast. I will <clears throat> figure I'm going to run about eight weeks. This is like week one, so it'll probably be seven more weeks of the way I've got it kind of figured out. But this is a Bible study. This isn't Sunday morning. I don't have to go wide to make sure I catch everybody and finish with a hook and all of those things that we do on Sunday. This is in-depth. We may stop along the way because I run out of time and we just got to go. We'll pick up next week because I want to give the text, the due diligence it deserves. And I don't want to just skim over things and assume you got it. This is a Bible study. It's going to be interactive. But for two reasons. One, I'm recording this. So I can't go question, answer, question, because they're only going to get half of it. And I don't want to pass a microphone around because that's a pain. The second thing, I don't want to get caught in a rabbit trail of going down this way to answer your question, get over there, and the next thing we're an hour away and we're in another book of the Bible and no one's gotten what they came here for, and that's Romans. So what I've done is I've created a response form. And I'm going to take your questions in written form, I'm going to answer them through the week, and we'll discuss those the first thing we do the next week to make sure everybody's on the same page. If anybody has any questions, we'll be able to follow up from that. And then <clears throat> during the week, I'm going to probably post something like a blog post or something to kind of recap where we are and let people know where we're going to pick up from. So if you miss a week or something, you got something to catch up to. I have, Ray, you want to be my secretary? Please. I have some fill in the blanks for you. At the bottom of the sheet, of course, give me one, right, please? I didn't say one for myself. Um, at the bottom of the sheet, you'll see a QR code. It's a little scan thing. If you have a smartphone, you can scan that, and that'll come right up to that form. You can fill out electronically, and it'll come right to me. You don't have to write anything out. There's a place that you can fill that out. Right next to it is the URL. You can type that into your browser and get to it. And I'm going to email this link and form to every one of you and every one of the Bridge family members, so you'll get that tomorrow. So if you don't don't have the technology and you don't understand having any trouble, it's going to get to you. If you don't get it, you can't open it, you can't find it, email me. So I can either fix the problem or help whoever needs it, get them help. So, I want to honor everyone's time commitment every week. We started a little late tonight because I, want, I wanted to make sure everybody got here. Next week, we're going to start promptly at 7, just like a Sunday. And I promise you, you'll be out the door as long as you leave. 
I mean, you're welcome, always welcome to stay in fellowship and those kind of things. But I will be done. You, can, you will be free to leave before 8 p.m. It might be 7.59, but I promise we'll wind her down. I'm not going to go all night because I could. Okay. Why am I doing this? Passion. I have a burning desire for everyone to be able to experience what I experienced when the Holy Spirit got me, when I submitted myself. I said, I've... For years, I've talked to Tim. Nancy and I talked to Jake when we first met him. You know, it's like, I, I don't get it. It was, it was there for me. Why do people struggle? And I said, if I want to, there's anything I'm passionate about doing, I want people to understand what I understand and have the opportunity to feel the change, to see the change, to be grabbed by the Spirit and go, I get it, and have something change in their life. That is why I do it. I'm compelled. I am compelled to do this. Like Paul says, I'm under compunction to do this. It's, it's, I think it's an outpouring of the Spirit when you get that understanding inside you. It's part of the Holy Commission. It's part of what it, the Holy Spirit expects of us, what God the Father expects of us, to carry it and push it forward. It's not something that is mine alone. I'm supposed to share it. We're all supposed to share it. And that's part of why I want to do this. And because it's, we can really go deep on a Tuesday night without the pressure of another service and kids and kids bridge and, and all of the other distractions. We can focus on this and we can go at the pace that is required for everybody to be on the same page. And my incentive to do this is revival. I would really love to see just an outpouring, as I talked about on Sunday, just beyond these four walls. That's how God works. He gets a faithful few, they spread it to a faithful few more, and the next thing you know, you've got a wildfire of a spiritual movement. And that's my dream, that's my desire, that's my prayer. And God's in the answering prayer business. So he's not going to do it if I don't take that step. So that's why I do it. Um, why I'm doing this. Okay. I want to talk first. We've got some groundwork to lay. I know the thing we did Sunday um, was a kind of a left curve at the last moment. Jake said, hey, you know it would be a good idea? Do an inter- do a um, an introduction on Sunday. I'm like, <laughs> and and I found out about that one hour prior to officiating the first wedding ever. You know, it's not like I had anything else on my mind, and I'm going, oh yeah, I think that's a great idea. <laughs> and so, it, it, I love the heart behind that because here's a pastor a new pastor of this church that was not about him to say, you know what is the most important thing right now? That other people get this and understand what we're trying to do and give a Sunday to support this. I was very honored that he did that, even though it was a 
a moment of crisis for me and a week of crisis for me preparing two messages back to back. So So on Sunday, I wasn't able to go as deep into the introduction and laying the groundwork that I want to. So we've got some catching up to do this week. And I hope to get us well into chapter two tonight. We'll see what happens. So I want to talk about, the first thing I want to talk about is strongholds. We all have strongholds, strongly held beliefs. The Bible, when they talk about strongholds in the Old Testament, they often talk about cities, walled enclosures, fortresses, places of safety. But the spiritual battle that we face is in our minds. And so the stronghold, when we talk about, Paul talks about strongholds, are strongly held beliefs, things that are between us and create enmity between us and God. We have a, we understand things. Well, I'll give you an example. We hear things from our parents. We learn things from people of influence when we're young, when we're in school. And it can, it can set up a false belief structure that it carries with you the rest of your life. And people can have those. And as we talk about truths of the Bible, they may bump up against those long-held beliefs. And your inclination, your instinct, because you've held this for so long, is to reject this out of hand. Just, it just doesn't fit. I've carried this forever, and I know this to be true. This can't fit, so go away. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, a very famous passage of Scripture, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So what Paul's saying is, those strongholds in our mind, we have to do battle against those. We have to, just like the Bereans, we have to judge what we know against Scripture and what we hear against Scripture to make sure that it lines up with what God has said and only accept that. And we have to be able to and willing to defeat those strongholds and take those captive to Christ and let the new stuff in. Are there any visual learners here tonight? Visual learners. I love visual learners. I'm a visual learner. Visual learners get a prize. We all get a prize. We're going to have fun these eight weeks. We'll make surprises. We'll do things. I want you to remember what we're doing. So I talk about visual learners because I'm a visual learner. I use pictures and symbols 
to help me remember important things. Things that I'm trying to learn. If I'm trying to internalize a Bible verse, I'll write it on the whiteboard on my wall and it'll stay there until I can recite it and know it all the time. So anything I'm trying to get in, I make it visual where I can see it. So, if you would, picture for me... Well, let's so. Stop. For the sake of argument, since I gave everybody a prize, that makes you all visual learners. So you have to pretend you're a visual learner, even if you're not. So I want you to picture with me a box. Okay, That's not exactly the box I have in my mind. Mine's a little more decorative. Mine's much bigger. And mine has handles, because I often carry my box around with me. But I want you to picture that box, because I want you to think about strongholds. When you come up against something that we're talking about and you go, that doesn't jive with what I've always believed and I'm not sure I can get that. Take, I want you to take that thought that is that stronghold. I want you to put it in your box and close it and put it away. We'll come back to it. But I want to get that out of your way so that you can internalize new things and you can hear God and the Holy Spirit speak to you because that's what Paul's talking about. Those strongholds, those strongly held beliefs block truth. And the enemy loves those strongholds. The enemy will reinforce those over and over to make it harder for God's truth to get in. So I want you to think about that, that mm, this, doesn't, this is something I'm not sure I like or I understand that could be the Holy Spirit trying to convict you. Put that, that objection in the box. Write it out. We'll talk about it. We'll, we'll work through that. I put all kinds of things in my box. Anger, rejection, those kind of things. Um, that's why I said I have handles on mine and carry mine around. I, I always have my anger with me, but I try to keep it in the box. So I let it out because if, if I keep the anger in, it comes out whenever... It wants to and not when I want it to. So these are the same things with strongholds, wrong beliefs. If they're in the box, you control when they come out and you can compare them to the truth. So here's my promise to you, and this is your first fill in. I will not challenge your belief system. The Holy Spirit is going to get you to do that. It's the purpose of my study. It's for the Holy Spirit to get you to challenge your beliefs and make sure they line up with the Word of God and what He is available in His revealed Word. So... Let's get down to business. The first thing we have to establish and reestablish from Sunday is God's righteousness. God's righteousness. On Sunday, I use this definition. God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. I'm going to pull that apart a little bit. 
On the face of that, you look at the words righteous and right, and he's right, and the standard of what is right. And I want to I make sure we get a clear picture of what that means in God's eyes. Because we have standards of right and wrong all around us in society. But they're flawed oftentimes. Sunday was the start of football season. And every Sunday, on fields all across America, there's two teams lined up, separated by those guys in striped shirts. Those guys in striped shirts carry the rules, and they are, have been invested, vested with what is right about the game. And it's their job to say, this is right, this is wrong. And so they are deemed to be right, except when they're not. Every Sunday, they're not right. Just ask the opposing team. They're never right. The guys who they rule against will always tell you. In fact, we have video camera systems now to check if they're right, to overrule them when they're not right. Those kind of examples exist all around us. We tell people man invests and deems what they say to be right, and then we argue about whether they're right or wrong. Judges, we're doing that all the time. Supreme Court, all of that stuff. We're always arguing about that because it is man's judgment that made them, that gave them the right to be right. God is always right in his standard. He is never wrong. And because we don't like it, we can't pull out the video replay and get him to change his mind. He is always right. And so on your sheet, that's why I put it this way. God is always right, and he's always right within his rightness. That's confusing, isn't it? What I mean is he doesn't have any waver of doubt within him. And he is not swayed by favoritism. He loves us dearly. He loves us. He created us. He chases after us. But he's not going to go, okay, you can slide on by. Because I love you. That's what we do. And that's what we expect him to do. But I need, you, I need you to understand, he doesn't do that. He gives us all this chance, but when the final, it's it. What's right is right, and he'll tell you what's right, and what's wrong is going to suffer his wrath. Yeah. Do we get that? Because the culture today wants us to abandon that. You hear it all the time. Well... Everybody's going to get into heaven because God would never, a loving God wouldn't condemn anyone. Well, you know, it's all about love. Love will win out. He's not going to do, he wouldn't ever do that. I'm good enough. All of those things. We 
ply ourselves with those lies and we believe them long enough, they become strongholds. And the enemy, the devil, Satan, uses those strongholds to let us believe and continue to believe that we're never in jeopardy. And I also want you to remember as we go through this the limitations of our language. Some of the original words in Hebrew and Greek just don't translate the way, the meaning that they had in the original. And we often have to use the same word for two or three different words. Like we have love. Greek has five, five words for love. And they all mean something slightly different, but we just lump it in love. So we have this word right and righteous. And we read it in the Old Testament, God would deem people righteous. It was his court of law. He brought the judges, and then he brought the, the prophets and the priests to be the determiners. He imputed his rightness to them to judge. And so we think, well, that's the same thing as we do today. It's not. It's not. When we talk about God's righteousness, that is the ultimate level. He hasn't given that to someone else to go, yeah, you can get in. It's not like the bouncer in the nightclub go, give me a couple bucks and you're on through. doesn't happen. And so when we read the Old Testament and we hear things like he, he, um, I had it just a second ago. He, um, he gives his righteousness to someone because of their faith or because of their whatever. It sounds like works righteousness. And that's the struggle we have that we're going to start talking about in Romans. This, this, again, versus righteousness by faith, righteousness by works. Jew, Gentile. And that is... Paul's first opposition that he brings to light in this letter to the Romans. Jew versus, he calls it Greek, but in the New Testament, Greek is just another word for Gentile. It's non-Jew. So they don't have to always be Greek. They could be any nationality along the way. The Macedonians and all of those, they were all Gentiles, but Paul lumps them in as Greek oftentimes in his letters. So Paul, when we left off on Sunday, I got to the point where he gives that famous line, the righteous shall live by faith. And I said, well, how does that compute? Because there is none righteous. And so this is where Paul goes in, and if you read it and you think about it, he's writing this letter again to the believers in Rome. Some of them are Jews, some of them are Gentile, but they're still believers. And the Jews wanted to bring all of the Gentiles and all of those who weren't of the Jewish faith under the law that they grew up with. They believe that law is still there. And that they, 
you have to comply to the law. You have to be circumcised. You have to do the sacrifice. You have to give these things up. You've got to do the, honor the Sabbath and all these feasts and all of those things. Trying to bring all of that law. Even though Jesus went out of his way while he walked to say, you can't, you can't live to the law. That's why I'm here. Come on, guys. It's a heart matter. So Paul's going to start, basically, he's going to put the law on trial. But he starts it out by putting the Gentiles on trial. And he starts to build his case to the Jews that are reading this, why the Gentiles are not righteous. And so that's the, the rest of chapter 1, and I'll read that to you now. Let's pray first. Let's pray first. I always like to pray before we jump into God's Word. Um, Father, we are grateful for your word. And we are thankful that, I am thankful that these people, my friends, chose to be here tonight to study your word and to study Paul's letter to the Romans in a deeper and more meaningful way than we've ever offered before. Father, I pray for your anointing that I may speak your truth in a manner that will be beneficial to my hearers tonight, whether they're here with me or they're hearing it on this recording. I pray for supernatural understanding and wisdom as we go through the study. Always reminding myself and others that we do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to jump back in and pick up right where we left off from Sunday, and that's verse 18. And Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools." and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to their dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. 
And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. I want to stop here for a moment and talk about another versus. God's creation and the way he created man, the world, and everything in it versus every other religion, belief system, and ism you can think of, whether it's relativism, humanism, Every other belief structure starts with us, humans, being of nothing, of no value, and improving themselves to the ultimate goal. And that is doing it on their own. God's system is he created us perfect. We fell and have been going the wrong way ever since. It's a big difference. Because you look at around us in society, we think we are getting better. We just know more things. We're going to explore more things. We're going to learn more about medicine. We're going to improve things. We don't need those old ways. We can, we can re-engineer genetics, and we can build our own our own plants and animals and all of these things. We can make ourselves better. It's kind of like some of the Eastern religions that we get good enough, we achieve the state of perfection with God or whatever their, their standard of perfection is. We had it. We walked away from it. We continue to walk away. And our God, our creator, has been pleading and calling for us to come back. That's what Paul's saying here. God gets to a point where he says, you know what, I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying here. I'm doing everything I can to get you to listen. But you want to go that way. I'll let you go that way. But when you get there, when you get to where you think you want to be, you're going to be sadly disappointed. And you're going to be hurting. And it'll be too late if you're not careful. Because we only have one life here. We get to the other side. We get to the end of this without coming to that revelation. It's over. I want to talk about some of the things that Paul talks about. I think a lot of times there's a confusion here of what of Paul talking about things to come. But he's talking about the things in the past. God has demonstrated for us where we came from, who he is, and what will happen to us. He's already done it. He's, he's in his word. He talks. He did the same judgment. Noah. 
In the times of Noah, everything. Man's heart was continually on evil, and God was done. Done. But he had one righteous man. He said, for one righteous man, I'll start over. And he had Noah build that ark. And he started over. Come around to Abraham. He's angry with Sodom and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and their, and their acts of, of heinous debauchery and sexual immorality and homosexuality and all of those things. And God said, I, I, I hear the cries of my people. I can't, I can't let it go on. And Abraham said, would you wipe them out for 50? If I could find 50 righteous people. He said, no, for 50, I, I wouldn't do that. And he goes to that famous of, how about 40? How about 30? How about 20? And he goes, for one right, if I can find one righteous man. There was one. There was Lot. He saved him. Brought Lot out and wiped out everything else. The thing I want you to know, the thing I want you to hear tonight, is because there's a lot of, Lot. Poor pun, sorry. Um, it's a significant number of people who think those stories are just fables. Just made up to scare people. In the time, the exact period when Christ was walking this earth, before he was born to Mary, of the Virgin Mary, there was a gentleman by the name of Philo, Justus Justinius Philo. He was born in 30 BC, 30 years before Jesus. He was born in Alexandria of wealth and means to a family. And he became a scholar. He became a noted historian. And he set out to chronicle the history of the Jews and the history of the time. And he was commissioned by the Greeks and the Romans in Alexandria to study this and document it. I want you to hear what he says. This was written, now this was written at about one or two eighty. So he's in his thirties, basically. He's talking about the story of Sodom. He says, but he inflicted on them an astonishing novelty, an unheard of rarity of vengeance. For on a sudden he commanded the sky to become overclouded and to pour forth a mighty shower. Not of rain, but of fire. And as the flame poured down with a resistless and unceasing violence, the fields were burnt up. And the meadows and all the dense groves and the thick marshes and the impenetrable thickets, the plain too was consumed and all the crop of wheat and everything else that was sown. And all the trees of the mountain district were burnt up, the trunks and the very roots being consumed. And the folds for the cattle and the houses of the men and the walls and all that was in any building, whether private or public property, were all burnt. All in one day, these populous cities became the tomb of their inhabitants. 
and the vast edifices of stone and timber became thin dust and ashes. And when the flames had consumed everything that was visible and that existed on the face of the earth, they proceeded to burn even the earth itself, penetrating into its lowest recesses and destroying all the vivifying powers which existed within it so as to produce a complete and everlasting barrenness. And this is the part I want you to get. So that it should never again be able to bear fruit or put forth any verdue, which I don't know what that is. And to this very day, it is scorched for the fire of the lightning is what is most difficult to extinguish and creeps on pervading everything and smoldering. And a most evident proof of this, proof of this, is to be found in what is seen today. For the smoke which is still emitted and the sulfur which men dig up there are a proof of the calamity which befell that country. 2,000 years after Sodom was destroyed in the time of this man's writing, while Jesus is alive on this earth, the smoke is still visible, still burning. That's hot. That's serious. And he goes on to say that around it is lush. Absolutely the most lush ground ever, except for that spot. Go on. And a contemporary of his is Flavius. Flavius Justus. He's a Roman. But he's a believer. And he was alive at the same time. And he was alive during the time when Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 72. And he was a writer. And his work, his work is stated to believe to be that um, is without question his writings of history. And he says, speaking of Lot, he said, But Lot's wife continually turning back to view the city as she went from it, and being too nicely inquisitive, and what would become of it, although God had forbidden her to do so, was changed into a pillar of salt. For I have seen it, and it remains at this day. Flavius had been there and saw the pillar of salt. It goes on to state, you could see that it was a woman. It was so clearly a statue of a woman, but it was salt right there, unmovable. And that was verified not only by Flavius, but of Josephus, Clement of Rome, and even one century later, Irenaeus, 
another Roman scholar was there and saw that pillar of salt and wrote about it in the second century. The destruction of what God said he would do is real. These stories are real. And I'm reminded of Revelation chapter 14. Talking about Paul's revel- or John's revelation from Jesus. Talking about the end times and when all of God's wrath is poured out and the end of Babylon and, and all of these cities. And he says, And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Reminds God's pointing them, us back to Sodom. That smoke is still coming up forever. When John wrote that, it was. It was still smoking and smoldering. And so he's giving us a picture, not of what is to come, but what has been done once over this calamity that we're seeing against our wickedness against God, against what we're seeing in our own culture. God is saying, don't do it. I've given you, I've given you this. Remember what? This is real. My wrath is real. Turn to me. Repent. And that's 750, so we're going to have to stop here. That, that's the goal of this message of this series, of this study is we have a propensity to point the finger at what is wrong and what people are doing wrong and condemning them. And that's going to come up in this next chapter. God's saying, and Paul is saying, no. We need to preach the gospel. It's what I said on Sunday. We have the Holy Spirit within us. We need to approach people. We need need to teach them the truth of what this is, not from a condemning standpoint, but from the love of God and give them a message of hope because that's why they do these things. They're hopeless. They're without hope, and they're searching and trying to find something that fulfills them. We have that answer. We need to be willing to share that. And so that's why as we go through this, We'll break down those arguments and we'll understand fully how to do that. Paul's word is powerful here because it's God's word. It's Holy Spirit's words. So this is not a bad stopping point. I hope to get through chapter 2 tonight. but um, Because Paul's ending his case with this against the Gentiles. And he's going to turn, if you were a Jew and grown up a Jew of that culture and you were reading this or you were hearing this for the first time, you would be saying, ah, Paul's going to lay the law down, well, another pun, (laughs) going to bring it hard on them. He's going to get them to conform to our way. Chapter 2 is a different story. So I hope, I pray, you'll return Tuesday and we'll pick this up where it was. Um, Don't forget, if you have any questions, any concerns. Did I forget one? Um, 
Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. God's wrath is always justified. Because God is right. His wrath is justified. He doesn't have to answer to us. And we don't get to be the jury in this. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this evening. I thank you for the opportunity again to share your word. I am I want to pray tonight for the the refugees that are being ousted from their native lands. Those are your people. In the bedrock of our civilization is just being destroyed by just false beliefs and, and people trying to make their own way and make their way better by killing others. And Father, I know that your heart is against that. Father, I pray for these displaced millions of people, millions of families that are living in tents or living on the street and have no hope. Father, we know that your gospel is their hope. And I want to pray tonight for the strengthening of all the missionaries and all of the relief workers in that area that are trying so desperately to guide them to a place of safety, but also, also share the truth of your love with them, that they can see the error of their ways and turn to you and repent of their beliefs. Father, I thank you for them, and I pray that, that your will will be done and that we will have every opportunity, any opportunity that we have to support them, we will seize with joy and with enthusiasm. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.